A few weeks ago, we ended our series through the gospel. Well, it wasn't the gospel. It was the book of Nehemiah. And uh, this week, we go now to the New Testament, to a short series in the book of Romans, chapter 2. If you've been here for uh, some time, part of our church, uh, you recognize that I usually alternate between the Testaments, so when we finish a series in the Old Testament, we'll go to the New Testament, and uh, that's our plan, that's the desire here. For the next few weeks before Christmas, we'll be just in Romans chapter 2, and we're, we're making our way slowly through this book. Um, we might finish it before my youngest graduates from high school, <laughs> but we're in no rush. So, if we're going to jump in this book, probably need to to, to review a little bit, to, to get your mind back into what's going on in the book of Romans. It's been over a year since we were in Romans 1. And so Paul begins the letter in, in chapter 1, and we won't spend a whole lot of time here, but clearly laying out a, the, the problem and then the solution, and that the gospel has come into the world through Jesus Christ. And, and he challenges the believers in Rome to remember the hope that they have through Jesus Christ, and, and that Paul is obligated, he's obligated to preach the gospel to all. And, and the, the answer as to why he's obligated is in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They have rejected the truth. People have suppressed the truth of who God is and what he's done. And then he, he says later in chapter 1, verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then he continues in this, this description of what life is like in the world. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations to, for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And, and then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. You can imagine the, the audience in Rome when he finishes this by saying, Amen. And you might think the same. This is today, right? They've given up the natural for the unnatural and fighting for the same rights that we have. All manner of unrighteousness in our world today. They have gender fluidity. They call it hate speech if we disagree. They don't allow prayer in schools. They tell us that sharing the Bible is considered bigoted. They say that disagreement for their agenda of marriage is evil. Every part of this world seems to be shoving Christians farther and farther outside to the fringe. And it can be frustrating how can they be so foolish in their understanding of the body and, and of marriage? How can they be so short-sighted on truth? 
How can they be judging us? They're the ones that are wrong, right? They're the ones who have done these evil things. We haven't. And then we come to Romans chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Why is it that some people find great satisfaction in reading and discussing other people's sins? Is it because it makes them feel better about themselves? Just when you think the focus of Romans is on them, on those people, on people that are outside of the church, Paul turns up the heat inside. The attention is on us, God's people. Everyone is under God's wrath because everyone has willfully rejected their creator. More specifically, though, he turns his attention to the Jews that make up the church in Rome. They are self-deceived, thinking that because God chose them, they can live any way they please. And in the judgment that they have of the world, Paul says they are condemning themselves to eternal judgment. Paul pulls no punches here. The hypocrisy of humans won't hinder the impartiality of God when it comes to judgment. So that's the main point this morning. The hypocrisy of humans won't hinder the impartiality of God. And there's two questions I want to answer, seek to answer here in chapter 2. The first 11 verses. Are we okay? And is God fair? So number one, are we okay? No, we're not. When you read verses one through four in chapter two, you quickly realize we are not okay. If you think it's okay to sit in judgment of the world all the while ignoring your own sin, you are not okay. Any Jewish person listening to him in chapter 1 would have assumed that they were exempt from this condemnation. They were law-keeping Jews. They were the elect of God. They were privileged people. And when Paul begins this this listing out of of how they live in chapter 1, you could probably hear the amens in the sanctuary. It is true. We see it, Paul. But it turns out that chapter 1 was not written to pander to his audience, but to expose the idols of the religious person. It's right to disapprove of the sins of the world. 
they are terribly mistaken to think that because their disapproval of their sins puts them now in the clear, that God won't judge them for their own sins. So this morning, we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you haven't already turned there, turn there. I'll encourage you again to have a Bible open. If you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, it's on page 883 there in the, in the chairs. There's a Bible there. We encourage you to take that. If you don't have a Bible, please take it as your own. We're going to walk through these verses here in, in Romans 2, 1 through 11, and answer these two questions. Chapter 2 seems to be Paul writing this diatribe against an imaginary opponent. No person is directly mentioned in the chapter, but it's, as we will find out later in this series, it's pointed to the Jew. After detailing the sins of the Gentiles in the end of chapter 1, Paul turns his attention to the Jewish audience, as we will find out later in the chapter. He's not removing, don't get me wrong, he's not removing the weight of sin on the Gentiles, But he won't give his Jewish friends a pass on their sin of judging them and refusing to deal with themselves. Both sins are still present. But as we know, religious people can easily judge others who sin more publicly than they do. We tend to be quicker and much harsher with our criticism of others than ourselves. We can, find, we can easily find all sorts of excuses for our own sins, that we're tired or, or irritable or, or provoked, or even say it's just really not that bad. It's not the same. John Stott said, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, while the very same behavior seems not nearly so serious when it's ours rather than theirs. When we condemn others while excusing ourselves, it allows us to hold on to both our self-righteousness and our sin at the same time. We can begin to feel good about ourselves while indulging the sin. And Paul is informing those that judge others and refuse to look at themselves that they're actually condemning themselves by their own judgment. But human nature, it gravitates to this defense that we're the exception. Well, there is no loophole for the person who acts like God in judging others and still sins themselves. God will will not ignore any sins, no matter your religion or your membership or your ethnicity. He is essentially asking the question, do you think that you're really that special when it comes to God's judgment? Do you really think that you can judge others who who do such things while you do them yourself? that you will then escape the all-seeing eye of God towards your own soul? Do you really believe that God will overlook your sin? He starts in verse 1, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. How are they practicing the very same things. Romans 1, verses 26 and 27 is very clear on the sin of homosexuality. And they might say, we've never practiced this. As as a good law-abiding Jew, they could say that. We've never practiced this. But at the root of the sin of homosexuality is the sin of pride. And we are all well-versed in the sin of pride, right? 
if you answered no, you've proven my point. <laughs> Pride is arrogance. Pride thinks it knows better, that its way is better. Pride sets itself in the first place. It bows to no one. Pride rules in the hearts of those that choose to act on their same-sex attraction. But pride can rule the hearts of us in this room as well. Pride rules the heart of a leader who has to have the last word no matter what. Pride rules the heart of a child who refuses to obey their parents. Pride rules the heart of someone who will never submit to anyone. J.C. Ryle writes, of all the sins, there is none against which we have such need to watch and pray as pride. It is a pestilence that walks in darkness and a sickness that destroyed at noonday. No sin is so deeply rooted in our nature. It cleaves to us like our skin. It roots never entirely die. They are ready at any moment to spring up and exhibit a most harmful energy. No sin is so deceptive and deceitful. It can wear the garb of humility itself. It can lurk in the hearts of the ignorant, the ungifted, and the poor, as well as the minds of the great, the learned, and the rich. We are not exempt from the sin of pride, and we will not escape the judgment of God. But what about the struggle today with transgenderism and the frustrations that we face in this world that we, we, have, to, we have to agree? Well, the sin of transgenderism at its root is envy and covetousness. Specifically, transgenderism is at its root a sinful envy of a sexual autonomy that they don't have. Envy, biblically speaking, is an obsession, a driving passion that insatiably desires a person to desire another gifts, possessions, achievement, or sexual uh, uh, gender. And in Romans 1, Paul situates the sin of envy as one of the consequences of exchanging God for idolatry. After having been given up to a debased mind, Paul lists the consequences, that they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. To be full of envy is to be blinded by the desire to have what belongs to someone else. Now friends, do you believe that the sin of envy is, is just the struggle for someone who's confused about their gender? The Jewish audience that Paul is writing to had to convince themselves that they were not as bad as their, as their Gentile friends. But let's be honest. We are gathered with God's people. Can we be honest this morning? Do you struggle with the sin of envy? Have you jumped to judgment for those struggling with this sin, with gender identity, while you have forgotten your identity as a child of God? because you want everything in this world. You want the good life. Your neighbor has that new car and it looks really nice. 
If we're honest, we are guilty of the sin of envy just as much as this world is. And he says, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do we see ourselves in this passage? See, a self-righteous person will acknowledge the existence of God but will see no need for him in their life. And this is the attitude of someone who desires the wrath of God to fall on everyone else for their sins but thinks that the wrath of God shouldn't fall on them. Our God who sees into the human heart has no trouble piercing through the hypocrisy of those who condemn others for the same sins that they practice. The hypocrisy of humans won't hinder the impartiality of God. He sees all and he will deal with all. The point of this section is that we should admit that we are among those people who practice these same sins in our own lives. And we deserve, we all deserve for God to destroy us instantly. And that's why he writes verse four. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Friends, it is pure kindness that God shows his forbearance and patience towards us. In God's kindness, he makes us aware of our sin. And our responsibility then is to turn from our sin, to repent, and to place our faith in Jesus Christ alone. God is never obligated to be patient. How much time have we given to considering the mercy of God and his patience toward us? One particular dimension of God's kindness and mercy towards us is his restraint. His restraint is meant to lead us to repentance. Friend, you may be here this morning now coming to the full realization that you're still a sinner and you're not really trusting in Christ when the rubber meets the road of your life, but you you feel okay about it because God really hasn't punished you yet for your sin. You experience no immediate effects of your sin, and you perhaps suppose that that you and God are, are good, that everything's fine, even though you haven't repented. I mean, you feel bad about your sin, but that feeling doesn't lead you to repentance, a turning from sin. And you might look at pornography. You might steal when you're at work. You might get drunk occasionally. And nothing really happens to you, so, so what's the big idea? What's the big deal here? Maybe God isn't that interested in you. Maybe he just took a night off. Maybe he really isn't as holy as as that preacher keeps on saying. Maybe this whole discussion of God's judgment isn't really that pressing. Friend, what you're experiencing in those moments, 
is the kindness and forbearance and patience of God. Just because you haven't seen the judgment of God yet doesn't mean it's not coming. Every time that you sin in defiance against God and His kindness and patience is shown, you need to realize that His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, a godly repentance. It is meant to lead you to turn from your practice of sin and turn to God in obedience of His Word. Wrath doesn't come to those who sin, but on those who sin habitually and refuse to repent. This is not a case of of sin versus sinlessness, but this chapter and this section is, is repentance versus unrepentance. And God is, in His kindness towards us, is leading people to complete change of mind about their sin. So what will you do with your sin, friend? See, the gospel is the antidote to our sin, to our rebellion against God. And in God's kindness to you this morning, he has brought you within earshot of hearing the good news. Friends, this is the best news you will hear all week. That God in his love sent Jesus, his only son, as a substitute for you for us, for me, for my sin, to die for our sins so that we could live at peace with God forever. We see in verse 5 that those who will not repent are storing up for themselves wrath, God's wrath towards their sin. If you refuse to repent, you will not escape God's judgment. If we hate and judge others, we are condemning ourselves because we sin in the same kind. But if we become loose then and say that it really doesn't matter, that that this whole discussion on sin is just, just overblown, then, well, we're still condemned because we're lining up with those who are already condemned. It's a nightmare where there seems to be no escape. See, it's, it's God's way of showing us that the religious and the irreligious are in the same dilemma with their sins. They're both without excuse. See, a, a religious person, if you think of yourself as not that bad, do you realize that you have been deceived about the seriousness of your own sin? And whenever you shake your head at the world around you, are you missing the point of your own wickedness and God's anger against you and your sin against him? And our excuses show our contempt for God's patience shown towards us. Our actions convict us because we all do evil. According to Paul and Jesus, there's no such thing as an exception to the rule. When God judges us, we're left found wanting because no one will be able to meet God's perfect standard of righteousness. And so the question that I let off with, are you okay? Perhaps you came in this morning thinking, yeah, I'm okay, I'm doing all right. I'm not nearly as bad as those out there in the world. Friend, you're wrong. You've already condemned yourself based upon God's word. 
The point of the truth of God's Word is to show you yourself. You and I are not okay. We need the gospel. We need to be honest about our sins, and we need to run to Jesus for salvation. See, in our sin, we have been storing up God's wrath towards us. But in the Bible, we read that God's wrath was poured out on His Son. That's the gospel. That's what frees us. So how do you know if, if this you in, in chapter two, these, if you saw that emphasized out there, how do you know that you there is, is Paul talking about you or someone else? Well, a few questions to think through. Do you believe that you're doing okay in life? Or do you believe you're a desperate sinner knowing full well that God has every right to cast you aside for your sin against him? When you see the sins of others outside of the church, does your heart run to judgment against them? Or are you broken over your own sin and thankful for God saving you? Do you really believe you'll be able to stand before God all on your own? Or have you come to know that your own unrighteousness, your own righteousness is like filthy rags and you need Christ's righteousness to stand before him? Each one of these questions needs to be answered. And, and God's word in Romans 2 is a grace for you to consider yourself before a holy God. But the second question in the text needs to be answered as well. Is God fair? Well, I don't know about you, but the question of fairness is a regular question in my home. And it's usually not between Katie and I but other shorter people that live there. Even though you don't struggle with fairness, maybe in the home, if I'm honest, we've, I've struggled with fairness in the world. How about you? When was the last time you were confronted with the issue of fairness in your life, either at work or school or, or even in your family, your extended family? We can quickly run to the issue of fairness when things don't go the way that we think they should go. I can imagine the Jews reading the letter and running to the issue of fairness, probably thinking that they have the upper hand because they are God's elect, because they do have the Old Testament, and thinking that they're, they're safe. They will soon learn that God is completely fair and their religious family won't save them they too need to repent and turn to Jesus. And why is that? Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent or unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The day of wrath is drawn from other Old Testament passages about the day of the Lord. Joel 2, 1 and 2 says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. 
See, the day of wrath is the day when God's judgment will be brought against sin. And Paul is warning the readers here that the day is coming. And with the refusal to look at their own life, but only look at the world and their sin, they're, they're hardening their own hearts in unrepentance. He says they're literally storing up wrath for themselves. This is the reverse of the Jewish concept that obeying the Torah stored up for oneself and other Israelites a treasury of blessings. Paul's purposeful in in this language here. Paul is saying that if you continue in your unrepentant sin, living as you have with no need to repent, then you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed and he will be completely fair. Verse 6, he will render or repay to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. See, wrath comes not on those who sin, but on those who sin and habitually will not repent. Paul is not saying that by your works you'll be saved. Okay, I, I understand that, that this can be a confusing section. But by your works, we will know we're saved. Paul is not writing our works-based gospel. He will later say in chapter 3 of this book, in 328, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So he's, isn't, isn't, he's in it, excuse me, he isn't introducing something new here. But he's saying these good works show our faith. He's in line with James. And God will judge people on that day according to the goals that they have set, whether the eternal goal of life focused on others and on his glory or a life goal of self-service and self-satisfaction. For one who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality will receive eternal life. When Paul writes this in verse 7, he's speaking of good works as a defining characteristic of a life. They think of others as more important than themselves. They want to live for the glory of God. But then the opposite of of this is true. Those who are self-seeking, who pursue honor in life in a dishonorable way, they obey unrighteousness in the truth of God and his word is not in them. So the effect of these two lives will prove if they have eternal life or not. See, another way of thinking about this, if you helpful this by illustration, that the apples on a tree prove that there is life, but the apples do not provide life. The apples are the evidence that the, the apple tree is alive, that that tree is producing fruit, but that fruit itself is not providing life. No, the life is from the roots where it receives its nourishment. And so for us as Christians, faith in Christ alone is the way for us to have life because Jesus gives us his righteousness and new life. He gives us his, his righteousness and alien righteousness from outside of us, which brings about us being able to do good works that shows we have real faith in him. So God does not judge people on the basis of how much they know of him 
and his requirements of them. He, he doesn't judge them on some physical mark such as circumcision. He will judge them on the basis of what they do with the knowledge of him. And if they obey what they know from the heart. And who, at this point, when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, who had the most knowledge? The Jews. The most responsibility to be in obedience to God's word. They had everything. And they needed to live in light of that, which required repentance of their sins and placing their faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Do you see the personal pronouns in the section? Your hard heart and storing up wrath for yourself. And then he says he will render to each one. Friends, what we learn from this section is that every one of us will stand before God all by ourselves. I remember being nine years old sitting in church and being afraid of that. Children, you will stand before God one day and no matter how desperate your mom and dad want to be there to help you, they will not. Your pastor will not be there to give it a defense for you, friends. All of us will stand before God one day. And repenting of our sins and placing our faith in Jesus Christ alone is a personal decision. It's not a decision that other people can make for you. It's not something that's passed down from one generation to the next. One day we will all stand before God in judgment of our lives and our works. And our works on that day will be evidence of our faith. The last judgment will be the full disclosure of our lives and will display whether we actually believed what we said we believed. It's true, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, but there is a hidden tape recorder of your life right now, of mine. that might cause fear. I hope it's a godly fear. But one day that'll be played. We will stand alone, but for those that are in Jesus Christ, we will stand forgiven. As if Christ is with us before God the Father. We are saved entirely by God's grace. And we will be judged entirely by our works. 
And those two things don't contradict each other. Because grace always changes the heart which results in good works. Those who receive rewards in that last day of good works for good works will show these good works faithfully in their lives here on earth. If there is a lack of any good works, there's a reason to doubt whether someone has been truly changed by the gospel. This is important for parents. I'm gonna drill in on that for a moment because I hear this from time to time. I know some of you have grown children who have left home and, and you recall very vividly a profession of faith when they were young. And I think out of good hearts as parents, maybe out of obligation and maybe some guilt thrown in there, we might say and use the language they're just not walking with the Lord. Out of a desire to want to think well of them. Friends, that's not in the Bible. It would be better for them and better for your own soul to understand that they're unregenerate. That there's no fruit, if there's no evidence of faith, then they probably weren't saved to begin with. And that will fuel your prayers for them. And you won't stop praying for them and asking others to pray with you. This is no judgment on you as a parent. You need to hear me say that, friends. Who saves people? Is it mom and dad? If it was up to us, we would all fail. It is solely upon God. And we entrust ourselves to him as parents. And we do our dead level best. But we mess up. I, we, I, we all can amen to that. We entrust ourselves and our, we entrust our children to the Lord. And probably we need to change the language. We probably need to even change as the Lord allows us how we talk to our unsaved kids. We don't want to, we're, we're not the ones judging them. But we should be the ones that are honest with them. Out of love and care. And pray, letting them know we're praying that God would save them, that he would bring life to them through faith in Jesus Christ. I need to end. We can all be very sensitive to favoritism in this life. As I said earlier, very much an issue for children, we see it very openly. But if we're honest in our hearts, we struggle with favoritism as well. The phrase, that's not fair. Perhaps we think of this more often than we'd like to admit. But on that last day, everyone will get exactly what they deserve. God is impartial. Every human being, either Jew or Gentile, will stand before God and God's judgment will be impartial. There will be no favoritism that day. God will not favor Jews over Gentiles on the day of judgment, but will judge them both fairly. And God will not favor 
church members over non-church members, or church attenders over non-church attenders, or whether you give money to the church or not. There is no partiality with God. He will be completely fair because He sees and knows everything. I wonder, I, I thought of this this week, what our friends and coworkers think about God's judgment. And then I wondered, what would they say if I asked them? If I came home and my neighbor across the street of whom I have a good relationship with thus far, and I say, do you believe that God will judge you one day? Of what the conversation will bring They believe they will face God one day. What about you? Do you believe what God's word says that you will face God one day? Have you lived your life in judgment of those who don't meet the standard of God all the while ignoring yourself and how you meet God's standard? Paul says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friend, if you ignore, if you judge others and ignore yourself, he says you're storing up wrath for yourself for that day is coming. And you're, you're laying it away, you're storing it away. And it never dissipates, it never grows smaller. And God's wrath for your sin is stored up against those who are not in Jesus Christ. Whether you believe that or not. Paul will say in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. There's no difference. For all have sinned, all, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as a payment by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. So Paul preaches in Romans 3, because this is a whole letter, he says all of our sins have been dumped on Jesus Christ on the cross and he has paid for them all so that we can have life. That is the only escape, friends. And it has nothing to do with our work but the work of Jesus Christ who accomplished it on the cross. And we glory in that. Will you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning for your word that shows us ourselves without any hiddenness. And you are very clear about us and our need for salvation that is only found in your son, Jesus. God, I pray that we will be humble this morning as we think more deeply about your word. I pray that none of us, none of us would walk out of this service puffed up in pride, that we have somehow done all the right things that we walk out thankful for you, God, and your grace in our lives. Help us to live lives of thankfulness 
Help us to live faithfully, to call others to turn from their sin and to trust in you alone. Give us boldness and strength. And I pray that you would bring fruit from our witness. For we ask this all in Jesus' holy and perfect name. Amen.